Good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Cole Harper. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and before I continue, let me just say something. What we're doing right now is very ancient. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. There's almost never been a time in the world where there's been a lot of uncertainty and God hasn't caused his church to shine. This is home court advantage. Let's be clear about that. These are paths that are well trod. And God knows how to do all things except one. He does not know how to fail you. Let's just breathe normal for the moment, okay? Whether we know it or not, Generosity has always been associated with stories of redemption. Have you noticed that? That's why in A Christmas Carol, Scrooge responds to a fresh start by doubling Bob Cratchit's salary and financing Tiny Tim's health care instead of just saying we'll get it next year. Um, we've come to expect it, almost. And that didn't come out of nowhere. The history of Jesus' people on the earth has always demonstrated and pointed to a tight, tight link between Jesus' sacrificial generosity toward believers and believers' generosity toward one another. In like times of plenty and in times of famine, times where things are uncertain and times they're not. In the 300s, St. Nicholas frequently put money for the dowry of women who couldn't get married in their shoes at night in Turkey. That's where we get the idea of stocking stuffers. He was obscenely generous because Jesus was obscenely generous with him. In Acts chapter 5, believers in Jesus provided for the needs of an explosively growing church by selling excess resources and then monetizing them for those who need. And as we saw last week, West demonstrated in 2 Corinthians 8 how generosity in the gospel makes us generous. There's no way around it, regardless of our level of affluence. Case in point, Paul pointed to, was the Macedonian church. Those believers flinched forward when they heard that in Jerusalem, things weren't going according to plan, much like our mornings here that an economic depression had settled over the city. And Macedonia, though broke, contributed mightily to the relief package Paul was putting together. They heard they were destitute, and they're like, can't let that go. And Paul didn't have to beg them for money either. Instead, the Macedonians begged to be allowed to contribute. Paul brought the Macedonians' generosity to the Corinthians' attention, hoping they'd follow through on a relief package for Jerusalem they talked about a year ago before. Because it's their turn to respond to the costly love of Jesus for them. It has always been like this. The movement of the soul to imitate God's generosity because it's the most beautiful thing we've ever seen. It goes as far back into history, actually, as the eyewitness accounts of Jesus on the streets of Palestine themselves. 20 years before there was ever anything called the Corinthian church. 
So the issue in 2 Corinthians, we're taking time to look at this morning, is sacrificial generosity. But we're going to do something a little weird. We're going to explore it through one of the most staggering accounts of Jesus' interaction with an Israelite we have in Scripture. An account that's been tragically confused with simplistic cuteness. It's the story of Zacchaeus from Jericho. And then on the heels of that, I will make a few observations about the role of generosity in the times and seasons we find ourselves this morning. Our texts are 2 Corinthians 8, 9 through 11, and Luke 19, 1 through 10. Church, these are the words of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it well. So that your readiness in desiring that work may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Luke 19, 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Pray with me. Spirit, would you look in our hearts and see the fact that our emotions are going in a hundred different directions? And by your power and by your grace, would you... Calm those thoughts and anxieties in the same way you calmed the Sea of Galilee. You turned it into a sheet of glass in a second. Help us see you as you are. If we need anything, it's to see your goodness. We love you. You're our hero and our best friend. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. It was the day before Passover. A little more than 24 hours prior to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. He had recently restored the vision of a blind man just beyond the city limits. And word of both this miracle and the famous teacher who performed it is spreading like wildfire through this densely populated suburb of Jericho, right? And he would be there in a matter of hours. Everyone knew he was coming. The village elders would have been notified and they would have pre-selected like an upstanding and honorable resident to honor Jesus, right, as the village guest. And nothing less than, a ho- than the hospitality of a public banquet, 
and the most honorable accommodations would do. That's just how the ancient world did it. It's worth doing. It's worth overdoing. Hospitality was taken very seriously. The village elders would have walked out to the edge of town, just outside their little suburb, and formally welcomed Jesus and his disciples. And they would have implored him to stay, probably for days. And upon accepting that invitation, as they were expecting, and rightfully so, Jesus would be escorted to a villa and all of them with foot washing and refreshments and conversation and rest. All of these were honoring gestures, right? Intended to both bestow honor on Jesus and present the village and the elders as honorable themselves. And his protocol would dictate Jesus would honor them later that night in a blessing and a statement he'd give during the celebration. But Luke makes it clear. Jesus had not intended to stay the night. That's why verse 1 is written the way it is, actually. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Got that up there? There we go. And this would have caused real disappointment. Preparations would have already been underway. Undertaken with the routine assumption that, of course, Jesus is going to say yes. Of course he is. This is how this thing goes. If we wear him down enough, he'll come. If they badgered him. But if Jesus didn't accept, those feast preparations would be abruptly canceled. To the dismay of now likely hundreds of people who have gathered along the streets this whole time. And unbeknownst to them, someone very unexpected has slipped into the crowd, likely hoping, in vain, I might add, he wouldn't be noticed. Verse 2, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Behold. It's a bit much, isn't it? Behold. It's the same way Luke introduced the angels who appeared to the shepherd. Behold. Like, what if someone came up to you at work and was like, behold, and it's just you, like, eating a donut? <laughs> um, my diet's terrible. <sighs> Here's the thing, though. He wants you to look at his name, Zacchaeus. It literally means righteous one. That's what it means. Oh, it does. It's a perfect, okay, I don't see how that applies, and... Oh, it does. It's a perfect example of how parents in first century Israel named their children. So with, the, with this hopeful and public expectation and aspiration that their child would grow up to exemplify, embody, and eventually own that name. It was an ethical prophecy over your kid almost. But verse 2 also demonstrates that whoever Zacchaeus' family was, those dreams of a righteous son had died a long, long time ago. Look at the second half. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. This is the worst kind of man this world knew of. What you've just read, what I've just read, is so disjointed and so dishonorable. It's actually hard to know where to begin, if I'm honest. You're probably thinking, yeah, okay, I got it. I know tax collectors, they, people didn't like them. And it's like, sorry, no. Try again. Zacchaeus was not a tax collector. 
he was an arch tax collector, more commonly referred to as a tax farmer, right? And to even be considered for this job, applicants had to outbid the other candidates by pledging Rome, like the highest revenue target they dared attempt for that region in particular, because Rome sold the tax farming job to the highest local bidder. There was a catch, though. If you did win the contract and you had to bid high, God help you. You were legally required to hit that revenue target. Even though you only got there to scare off the competition. These auctions were so notorious for producing corruption that the Roman Senate, by this point, had been trying to outlaw them for years, unsuccessfully. But even after a tax contractor got this job, they weren't even pawned yet. The only way they made a profit was by charging extra on top of the already bloated, ridiculous figure they'd promised to Caesar. All of this means, for you and I, Zacchaeus earned his living by cannibalizing the livelihood of his countrymen. He was so ruthless at it, mind you, that not only did he make a living, he was obscenely wealthy because of it. Rich in a job that weeded out anyone with a trace of humanity or compassion, not to mention generosity. So Zacchaeus is no mere tax collector. He is the kingpin of Jericho's Roman tax cartel. The reason, if we're honest, children went hungry in Jericho. Livestock died. Real moms and dads would be sold off to slavery or put into debtor's prison. He wasn't just despised. He was anathematized, cut off. So the dark irony of the name righteous one is almost too much to bear. Maybe it was too much to bear for Zacchaeus. I don't know. Because I'm racking my brain trying to figure out why what happens next happens. But it does. Unbeknownst to the crowd, something is stirring inside this traitor. For some reason, he wanted to see Jesus. So badly, in fact, that he took his life in his own hands to do it. Do you know that? By entering a crowd of his own victims in broad daylight with no security detail. Collaborators like this with the enemy, it's unanimous. They did not do that. They did not mix in crowds. That's how you get yourself killed. And in a situation like this, he's got guts, I'll give you that. What would happen if someone decided they were done with his shenanigans? Flash of a knife, hand over the mouth. No one would even know he's dead. And by the time the crowd moved on, the killer would already slip back into the group of people, his body left in the street. That happened somewhat frequently, depending on the year. Nevertheless, he presses in. He's, he's got something going on underneath the surface. Look at verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. I know the song, we little man's Zacchaeus, we little man's he, or whatever. I get it. It's not exactly clear what Luke means here, though. It's really bizarre. The, the way you'd say someone is low in stature was the same way you'd say they're low in status. 
in a lot of ways. They're very, very similar. So he could be like a little Danny DeVito walking around. That's entirely possible. That's what he's like in my head. But I think there's a double entendre going on here because it makes sense of the context if the crowd is boxing him out. He should have known this would happen. A man like this would receive no help or goodwill from a crowd of his own victims. A willing collaborator with Rome, he's purposely boxed out and denied any visual access to this famous teacher from the north. He's already pushing his luck just by being there. And you can imagine how a little misplaced assertiveness on his part might push this like, crowd dynamic right to the violent tipping point. I was in uh, Jerusalem in the May of uh, 2018, and we were kind of near the Temple Mount, and we had a tour guide who would, they had a thing called a whisper. It let the tour guide talk to you in a big line of people without having to shout over like cars and traffic and stuff like that. So we were getting a tour of Jerusalem, and the Ari was his name. The tour guide says, please keep moving. You must keep moving. I'm like, what? And we were by the Temple Mount at this point, and he goes, don't stop. I know you're thirsty. I need you to trust me. Keep moving. I just, and I got a little curious, so I kind of power walked up to the front, and I did. I just asked Ari, um, what's the dealio? And he goes, well, he covers his hand on the microphone, so it won't, everybody won't hear it, and he goes, um, do I look nervous? It's because I am. We shouldn't be here right now. Friday prayers are almost over. I'm like, whatever, big deal. Palestinians and Jews, they deal with this every day. This was no normal Friday. This was the Friday after the United States relocated the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to downtown Jerusalem. And that's when it hit me. The stragglers in the group had actually endangered the lives of everybody, and I knew that was real because as we were walking, three Israeli police with smoke grenades on their chest and plexiglass riot shields are sprinting past us to the Alask Mosque. And there was a sense that, keep your head down, be cool, you'll be all right. That's the kind of atmosphere that would have been over this whole thing, right? This whole event's happening on the eve of Passover. Think about that. Commemorating what? God's violent overthrow of their Egyptian oppressors. So both spiritual and nationalist sentiments, they are at red line. They always were at Passover in Judea. And they're at their breaking point, especially against Rome 2.0, or Egypt 2.0. Their current oppressors and how exactly Zacchaeus is in league with them. So on a day like this, in a crowd like this, a man like this should not be there. And if he's going to see Jesus, he's got to get creative. And that's the only thing I can think of that explains the insanity of what happens next. Jesus, verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. Zacchaeus, who's as a wealthy nobleman, his posture, his gait, his attire would have all been designed to telegraph his wealth. And he does the unthinkable. The dude runs. 
Wealthy men in the Middle East don't run. I don't know if you know that. Think about what you have to do. If you're wearing a tunic, you have to like lift it up above your knees. It's very undignified. Highly shameful. And if, middle, if men in the Middle East don't run, and they're, if they're noblemen, they definitely don't climb trees. <laughs> New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey really helps us with this here. He actually looks at the memoirs of our former ambassador to Egypt to communicate how weird it would be for a powerful man to run. It was John Badeau, the American ambassador in Egypt under JFK, and he describes one day in particular where he was mortified. He said, at one time I was climbing a tree in my walled backyard garden of my private residence in Cairo to fix some lights for an embassy garden party. But this innocent private act had somehow become public knowledge and caused such a stir that I was confronted by Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser in person asking if the story that reached his ears were true. He had heard the unbelievable tale that someone with power had the gall to climb his own tree in his own yard where no one would be around in theory. And he ends the, he ends the memoir uh, article like this. He goes, in the Middle East, powerful men do not climb trees. Got it. And why is Zacchaeus in a tree? What does that say about a man climbing a tree along a major highway? It's a shameful idea. But it's not stupid. In a complicated story, Luke's compressed into 10 verses. He goes to the trouble to specify it's a sycamore tree. And in case you're wondering, that's weird. Ink is expensive. Writing materials are expensive. Likely because he, he knew sycamore trees were low enough that this like little, tiny little man could actually get his leg up into the branches and climb in. Sycamores grow, like their branches really low to the ground, and they hold a lot of weight. And their leaves are really kind of big, and there's a lot of them. So if Zacchaeus played his cards right, he could get in that tree and hide pretty well. More to the point, though, at this time, sycamores and trees like it, they had to be like 75 feet-ish away from a residential area. So you see what he's doing here. He takes off like a lightning bolt across town to the south. He wants to get in front of the crowds and beat them, dive in a tree. By the time they get to the tree, it means they're leaving the village, the whole crowd around him is like, Jesus, stay with us, stay with us, stay with us. And he'll get a look at who this guy is. It's kind of smart. It's risky. But it might work. But it's whole, the whole thing banks on the fact that the crowd's going to start to dispersed by the time he leaves the suburb. They didn't leave. They didn't leave. However well-intentioned, his plan backfires horribly. Judging from what we're about to read, the leaves and foliage have not hidden him completely. So now Zacchaeus is exposed, likely snagged by clusters of branches, revealing his pasty white legs, all of that. And the crowd that's around Jesus is slowly coming up the street. So the crowd's over there, growing more frantic because it looks like Jesus is he's going to leave. He's not going to stay with us. That's a big honor no-no. Zacchaeus, and they're getting 
really irritated by the time they're going to pull parallel with the tree. Zacchaeus is over here sticking out like a sore thumb, and the whole irritated mob gets even, and it's disaster. If Jesus can see him, so can everyone else. And if the next 30 seconds were a movie that I were directing, this scene would be in slow motion in the cacophony of voices of the crowd assaulting Jesus. Why don't you stay? Why don't you stay? Would have like faded out into like this high-pitched ringing. Because in moments this mortifying, you don't comprehend when those requests to Jesus turn to insults toward you. You ever had moments like that? Abject terror, mortification, and embarrassment. You don't comprehend the insults. The insults comprehend you. The crowd of people who wanted nothing more than to see this worthless piece of human debris backed into a corner just got their wish. For Zacchaeus, this moment has nothing but blood-red ears and ice-cold sweat. Face-to-face with a vortex of hostility he created through years of greed and abuse. I've had moments equal to this. I've not had a moment like this, though. Or when embarrassment and shame are so intense that you feel both hot and cold, fat and thin, heavy and light, like all at the same time. You know what I mean? You just feel the earth pushing up against your feet, and you just want to die. There was one thing. I, I ran into a skier when I was skiing one time, and I knocked his kid over. I never prayed for a sniper so hard in my life. I just like, get me out of here, you know? You just don't want to be there. You just wanted to die. What is it about the Bible, though, and shameful men hiding in trees? Why does that keep coming up? History doesn't repeat itself, but man, it sure does rhyme. From the Does this sound familiar? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The shame of Adam's nakedness drove him into the trees. The shame of Zacchaeus' whole life drove him into that sycamore. And here he is waiting for whatever catastrophic revenge comes next from the community. Orson Scott Card, he was writing about shame in his book, Ender's Shadow. He put it like this. Suicide is not really a wish for life to end. What is it then? It is the only way a powerless person can find to make everybody look somewhere else away from the shame. The wish is not to die, but to hide. And then something happened that nobody, nobody could predict. We are so far off the beaten path of like protocol and culture, that's so far behind. What Jesus does next doesn't make sense. A long time ago, God called to the man hiding in the trees covered in sh- and covered his shame. And this day in Jericho, God called him again. As Zacchaeus waits for the wrath of this community and the God he betrayed, Jesus' Galilean accent pierces the din of the crowd. And what he said made everybody look somewhere else. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. 
Jesus gave the crowd something to look at far more shameful than the spectacle in the tree. What Jesus has just done, the town would never get over. People of high stature have suddenly been bypassed. Protocol and traditions, gone. The village community selects the form of hospitality, not the guest. Even then, the guest would not eat at the house of a notorious sinner like this. Jesus, in calling Zacchaeus, draws their fire. He redirects the hostility of the crowd to himself. And in a world obsessed with preserving honor and avoiding shame, look what happens next. Verse 6, so Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. You know what received him joyfully means? It means that in front of everyone, Jesus, Zacchaeus got down in whatever weird way he was able to finagle that, walked over to Jesus and exchanged kisses and greetings with him in front of this vortex of vitriol and hostility. And they began walking together toward Zacchaeus' house. The very thing the village elders were trying to get Jesus to do with them all day. Jesus has embraced this heartless kingpin to set foot in his defiled house, to eat his defiled food, to drink his defiled wine, to use his defiled utensils, and to sleep in his defiled guest bed. The same way Jesus listens to my defiled prayers. Jesus listens to every little petition I've made of him. He listens to every call I've ever made of him. He looks at everything I do for him as messed up and as corrupted as it is and wades into the muck and turns it into something beautiful. Do you guys know what a Chuck Norris joke is? A Chuck Norris joke is when you do this. You say something like, you know what happens to Chuck Norris when he jumps in a pool? Nothing. The pool gets Chuck Norris. He doesn't get wet, right? He transforms the thing that usually transforms other things. And that's what Jesus does. He takes everything that is defiled and somehow makes it okay. Jesus has been doing this with us our whole life. He's been doing it with the Corinthians their whole life. When you shared a meal with somebody in the ancient world, you know what it was? It was a signal that reciprocal honor and respect were taking place between the two. They'd become like family in that moment. Zacchaeus has become the recipient of costly, unexpected love. And I say costly because in a desperate attempt to regain honor, right, the crowd begins to shame Jesus. they got to re kind of recover. So in verse 11, it records the village trying to save face and reclaim some of that honor. Verse 7, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Yeah, he did. That's what he does. He doesn't now know how to do any different. Jesus has identified with a man who didn't deserve it, stood to be counted with the scum of the earth, and began walking the street under the weight of shameful, burdensome reproach, beneath a hail of insults, snide remarks, and mockery, an ominous foreshadowing of a storm waiting for him 15 miles south in a powder keg called Jerusalem. In verse 8, the account skips forward to the post-meal festivities that night. 
as Zacchaeus' private residence. And the moment arrives during the banquet when the host would stand and offer with those gathered his formal response to everything that's transpired between he and the guest of honor, Jesus. What makes this scene unique is unlike most of Jesus' like encounter stories, we get to see a glimpse of what happened later. Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. We don't know if she did. We have no clue whether the woman at the well underwent any sort of change in nature. We do see some of this in Zacchaeus. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, half my goods I give for the poor, and I have def- if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Jesus has fundamentally changed Zacchaeus' nature. His whole life was doing the opposite. Zacchaeus identifies two separate groups that will receive his generosity. The poor, generally, and the victims of his extortion, specifically. See, when Jesus opened his heart to him, Zacchaeus' heart opened right up to the poor. It has always been like this. And this makes Jesus declare to everyone gathered, including him, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus was a new man, and that's how he loosed the grip on his earthly fortunes. Hear this. He wasn't guilted into it. He was graced into it. Did you catch that? Jesus graced him into it. Does generosity save you if it's a crucial mark of a real Christian? No, of course it doesn't. Generosity does not cause salvation for the same reason thunder doesn't cause lightning, but true lightning always makes thunder. And truly encountering Jesus' generous love always, always makes us generous. And that's how a broke cluster of churches in Macedonia gave to Jerusalem out of their poverty. And that's why the Corinthians, vastly more well-off than the Macedonians, should be proportionately generous to their level of affluence. I'm going to put this together and wrap it up with three, three kinds of generosity that are sparked by God's love, okay? Number one, God's costly love sparks tangible generosity. There's this rumor floating through the New Testament that real Christians give to those in need. And you see it crystallized in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that we, when he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And he tells us what that means. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Being found by God, loved by God, will always transform me, you, and everyone else into a reciprocating lover of God. But how do you love God in deed and truth? Like, God the Father is in heaven. The Son is like at his right hand. The Spirit, I can't touch him either. How do you love God, right? How do I love God tangibly? 
by loving the ones who bear his image and belong to his family, especially in a climate like this. How do I love God tangibly? You share your Purell with God who doesn't use Purell by sharing it with your neighbor who does. You care for the health of God who cannot catch a virus by caring for the health of your neighbor who can catch a virus. You share your money with God who doesn't need your money by giving it to your neighbor who does. You share your toilet paper with God. (laughs) We can move on. If this seems like hard, though, or inconvenient or irreverent, um, let's meditate on the alternative to the gospel's tangible generosity, which is tangible greed. My wife and mother-in-law were at Hy-Vee yesterday, um, and they began engaging one of the employees in the bakery, I think, something like that. And one of them asked the lady who was working there what it's been like to work at Hy-Vee when all the crazy stuff's going on. And she replied by observing how, like, arbitrary and random panic shoppers' purchases have been. She said, today everyone's obsessed with olive oil and vegetable oil. That's the thing. So we're completely out of it. But how does olive oil help us fight a virus? I think we could say the same thing about the toilet paper thing. COVID-19 is a respiratory virus, not a White Castle or Taco Bell virus. (laughs) Just doing the math here. Virus isn't going to be like, dude, that guy uses double ply. You don't want any of that heat. (laughs) So why stockpile Quilted Northern? Or more to the point, why hoard anything? Because in the absence of tangible generosity of Christ, there is greed. And greed doesn't know what it wants. It doesn't even know why it wants it. Why olive oil is suddenly important. It just knows it wants more. It moves about the landscape, consuming whatever resources it finds to maintain its existence, and moves on when those commodities are depleted, without reason, without intelligence, and without love. Greed acts like a virus in Worthington and in Jericho. And the only thing worse than catching a virus is behaving like one. Most who stockpile hand sanitizer won't use half of it and won't need medical care even if they contracted a virus. But in our horde of panicking, if we buy it all out of an emotional impulse, we make the possibility that the elderly or frail or the already sick will become sick. The question we should ask ourselves isn't which supplies to stockpile, but rather how to support those who are truly vulnerable to a disease we're still trying to understand. Last week, it sparks relational generosity. West made the crucial observation last week that generosity affects way more than money. And that, too, is evident from the account we just read. Because the story would not exist were it not for relational generosity Jesus brought to this village in Jericho. And it's not hard to see, to see it as soon as you know how to look. Did it strike you as odd that Zacchaeus is named in Luke's gospel? Did that seem weird? Especially even though he's not a central character to the gospel? Luke didn't name the leper Jesus healed in Luke 5. He didn't name the paralytic that was healed. 
or the widow's son he raised, or the demon-possessed dude across the Sea of Galilee. So why do we know Zacchaeus' name? The fact that we know this tax farmer's name and where he lived suggests that in the years after Jesus rose from the dead, Zacchaeus became an authoritative eyewitness of what happened that day, the stunt Jesus pulled. Becoming a guardian of the tradition, and it would seem that the community, as far as we can tell, sort of wrapped around that. They would rehearse that oral tradition time and time again until one day a man named Luke comes along and tries to gather those eyewitness testimonies. And there's a name to put to that because while Luke's writing it, Zacchaeus is still alive. And he puts Zacchaeus' name down for those reading or hearing his gospel to say, go check this out. Zacchaeus, he lives in this town. He's still alive. He can authenticate this. He was using it as a footnote or a bibliography. And that would not happen if the generosity that erupted in Zacchaeus' heart, thanks to Jesus, didn't cause an eruption of relational grace with Jericho, the people he had fleeced for decades, probably. He wrecked homes for a living throughout, and he was probably sitting in their homes teaching this account to be shared throughout time. The gospel always produces relational generosity. You're going to need this too. I'm going to need this too in the days to come. For most of us, this will be the first time we've walked through a national health emergency. And at times, you will have loved ones, or you will be the loved one, who will overreact, be animated by fear, ignorance, maybe even a tinge of goodwill, but make bad decisions for those around you. That might be me. Others will underreact because we're afraid of being like the first guy. And in doing so, we'll downplay concerns, imagining our, that we know more than we do, and we'll make decisions that are just as unhelpful but in the opposite direction. And you know what? That's okay. Because most of us have never done this before. Expect to forgive people far more often than you think you will. The most vulnerable demographic right now is, they're not the immunocompromised, they're not the elderly, it's the idealist who wants the insight and understanding that only hindsight can bring, not the process of trial and error that alone can generate the wisdom we wish we had. So forgive often because you've been forgiven much. Love much because you have been loved much, man. Lastly, it sparks joyful generosity. Grace ruins you for the better. It turns everything you do into this weird form of worship because your foundness, your being made a son of Abraham, reinterprets everything you are and everything you have as little tiny artifacts of that foundness by God. Zacchaeus reveals his plan for generosity at a banquet, not a pity party. The Macedonians beg to be allowed to give. Joyful generosity is the new default for those who are in Jesus. For those to whom God has been generous, they don't just do it, they like it. In closing, may I suggest joy in our strategy? The church has been forced to adopt or adapt before. That's nothing new. 
Suppose we take our place in the long line of believers who have navigated the tension of serpent-like shrewdness with dove-like innocence. It reminds me of something one author said. Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they could be completely fearless, in constant trouble, and ridiculously happy. You might say that sounds a tad generous. Yeah, it does. I think that's the point. Pray with me.